it's time once again to head out to the Kootenays and <laughs> rustle up Bob Keating. For the last four months or so, Bob's been telling us stories from where he's lived and worked for decades now, giving us a peek at the stories behind the stories from his lovely corner of the world. Welcome back, Bob. Pleasure to be here, Cheryl. Now, last time we chatted, you said something that really piqued my curiosity. You were talking about your friend Glenn Hicks, who's a famous globe-trotting journalist, and Glenn had moved to the Kootenays after working in places all around the world. And you said that Glenn soon realized in small-town journalism, you can have a real impact on your community. What did he mean by that? Well, any journalist can have impact on their community, or even the world in some cases. Remember, journalists have ended governments and even helped end wars, like Seymour Hersh, who broke both the My Lay Massacre story in Vietnam, then the Abu Ghraib prison story in Iraq almost four decades later. Now that is impact. One journalist, in part, ending two wars in the same career. I will likely not bring an end to a war here in the Kootenays, but doing journalism in small communities does have tremendous impact too. I actually think more impact than running with a pack in a big city. I know because I've seen it myself. Okay, so give us some examples from your time there. Here's the most basic example I can think of. About five years ago, I got a call from a senior who lives at the edge of town, Mary Mortimer. And Mary was afraid to fire up her car. She owns a 2004 Subaru. And she'd been informed one of the front airbags was defective and could explode, which frightened her. Mary called me and said Subaru told her they're so backed up fixing this defect, it would take up to a year to get her car into the shop. Mary told me, quite matter-of-factly, she might not have another year. So I popped out and asked her the usual first questions, name and age. My name is Mary Mortimer, born in 32. I let you do the math. <laughs> Mary Mortimer is 84 years old and she loves her Subaru. I've driven Subarus for at least 15 years and every one of them has been great. Last now, month, Mortimer a got a letter about her 2004 Subaru legacy. The airbag in the passenger seat is defective and if inflated could spray shards of metal. So I can't put anybody in the front seat. My story aired here in BC, and the very next day, Mary got a call from the Subaru dealer about an hour away, who said to bring in her car immediately. She did that and was back on the road by week's end. Did I end a war? No, I did not. But my story did get a senior back on the road so she could go get her own groceries. Mary's 89 now and still drives that Subaru around town. <laughs> a small victory, but what a difference to somebody's life. Well, exactly. And I don't think that would have happened in a big city where hundreds, even thousands of people were lined up to get this defect fixed. A small town dealer heard the problem of a small town senior and did something about it. And good on him. Now, Bob, do you get calls like that, like calls to help out with things like that a lot? Yeah, from time to time. I remember one, a call from another senior who actually said he was dying hmm. and wondered if I could help. This caller's name is Desmond McKilligan, and he's from a tiny village to the north of me. In the 1970s, he had a blood transfusion. Back then, Canada had a tainted blood supply, and Desmond got hepatitis C from that blood. And by the time he phoned me, his organs were starting to fail, and he was dying. So I went out to see him, 
and I did this story on it. I can lose my thought halfway through a sentence. 65-year-old Desmond McKilligan of Caslow got hep C after receiving tainted blood 45 years ago. He has little doubt it's going to kill him. His latest liver biopsy says as much. And it was level 4 fibrosis, which means... And sure, here's the thing about Desmond's condition. There was this brand new drug back then called Savaldi, and it was an actual cure for hep C. But it cost up to $100,000 for the full treatment cycle, and there was no way Desmond McKilligan could afford that. So he was dying of a disease that could be cured, but couldn't afford that cure. My story aired, and immediately a local doctor here heard it. The doctor happened to be doing trials on this new drug, and Desmond got in on one of those trials. Oh my goodness, so how, how did that all turn out? What happened to Desmond? He lived to watch his son grow, and wrote me the nicest email I've ever received. It just said, thank you, Mr. Keating, you saved my life. I still get emotional just reading it, you know, because doctors, you know, nurses, paramedics, police officers, they save lives all the time. It doesn't happen to journalists all that often. And it does speak to the impact of doing this kind of work in a small community. Desmond actually popped by my office last month to say hello. He looks fabulous and says he feels better than he has in years. Oh, Bob, what a, what a story. Yes, you can alter the course of lives in this job. And I think particularly in small town journalism, where a lot of people know one another and the subjects of stories aren't just names, they're friends and neighbors. Here's another example. I once got a frantic call from a mother whose schizophrenic son had been ordered out of town. This young man had taken to screaming at people on the street and making violent threats. So the provincial court where I live actually issued an order saying you must leave the city no later than noon Thursday. It was like high noon. He was being ordered out of town. His mother phoned me in tears, saying he had nowhere else to go, and this edict was condemning him to a life on the streets in Vancouver. A BC mother says the courts are pushing her mentally ill son onto the street. The 26-year-old Nelson man violated a probation order. Now a judge has ordered him out of his hometown. Bob Keating has that story. He was given the order by a court that he has to leave the town by Thursday at noon. On the steps of the Nelson courthouse, Annalee Arak blinks back tears. Now after that Arik, story, the judge who issued that banishment order realized it was wrong and to his great credit, arranged for another hearing immediately and reversed himself, scrapping the order. That, I think, would only happen in a small town or city where a judge reacted to local media and local outrage and arranged for court time to reverse a decision he regretted. And that's what I mean by having impact. It's immediate here and often pretty gratifying. I'm guessing, Bob, that it can work the other way as well. It can negatively affect people that you get to see on a regular basis. Yes, that is the flip side. I know of careers I've ended, all men in high positions, one a politician, one a senior government official, and one an industry leader. They all either quit or were fired because of my stories. I take no joy in that, but that too is part of this job doing probing investigative stories that shine a light on wrongdoing and have a negative effect. Once years ago, a really green politician was elected and I knew was in over his head. He happened to have an office down the hall from me when I had an office downtown. And so I bought an expensive bottle of scotch and took it down to him and said, I am going to do stories with you in them. Many of them will not be flattering. And when you're furious with me, I want you to take a shot of this scotch before phoning or coming down the hall. Or take two shots and don't phone at all. I told him, it's never personal. It's my job, but it's going to affect you. And he understood that. Did he take the shots, Bob? Yeah. 
I don't know if he finished the bottle, but he was not elected to a second term. Mm. You see, it's a small community and it just, these stories do cut very close to the bone and you do affect lives. The lives of people you then see in the supermarket or driving down the street in their Subaru or just down the hall from you. And sometimes even that effect is unintentional. Well, tell us, tell us more about that part. Okay, but to hear more about that, we have to meet the bear dude. And I'll tell you one of the funniest stories I've ever told. Uh, funny, unless you're the bear dude himself. Полиция Канады обнаружила плантацию марихуаны, охраняемую 13 Полиция Канады обнаружила плантацию марихуаны, охраняемую 13 черными медведями, сообщает The Canadian Press. Помимо... Oh, Bob, what the heck is that? That is a TV anchor in Russia trying to spit out the story of the bear dude, which he never quite does. I think I remember this story. It happened around Christina Lake, right? Yes, back in 2010. For me, the story started with a phone call from fellow journalist Gregor Craigie in Victoria. Gregor had spent time in the Kootenays and still had contacts here. And he told me he heard from one of those contacts that a marijuana grower high up in the mountains was using bears to guard an illegal grow-up. I said, sure, Gregor, I'll check that out. Now, if this was anyone but Gregor Craigie, I'm not sure I would have made that call because bear is guarding a grow-up. Sure, yeah, that's happening. But Gregor is as solid a journalist as you'll ever find. So I phoned one of my RCMP contacts and he said, yep, they busted a grower and a herd of bears came out of the forest at this remote grow site. Then the cop asked me, do you want to see the pictures? <laughs> Who could resist that? I couldn't. And I was at RCMP headquarters within 10 minutes and couldn't quite believe the photos they showed me. RCMP, yes, had raided an outdoor grow site clinging to the side of a mountain way off the grid above the tourist town of Christina Lake. And when they got there, black bears started pouring out of the forest. At first, it terrified these cops, but then they noticed the bears appeared dominant. They were nuzzling up to them and scratching themselves on the side of police cruisers, even fetching sticks. It was surreal. And I knew as soon as I saw these photos, I had a major story on my hands. It is a rare thing in journalism to write something truly original that no one else has ever written before. And the radio and web stories of the bear dude were so unique and so fascinating and hilarious. And I just sat back and watched it all because I knew exactly what was going to happen next. When RCMP officers moved in on a grow-up in the Kootenays, they found the crop being guarded by nearly a dozen bears. At least 10, all different sizes, wandering near the house. Officers were literally surrounded by black bears during one of their strangest busts ever. Well, it made me think of Jurassic Park right away. You could tell the bears had been living there. The story went around the world. The LA Times did a piece, the UK Telegraph, and that hysterical Russian anchor who couldn't quite spit it out. For a storyteller, this was gold. A reclusive hippie, the bear dude, was supposedly training these bears to guard his illicit marijuana crop. The dude also had a pot-bellied pig and pet raccoon named Little Dude. It just couldn't get any stranger. And best of all, no one got hurt in this raid, and it was just pure fun for a writer. I'm guessing maybe not quite so much fun for the bear dude. No, it was not. And that is where you have to be careful where you point that keyboard. 
This was not fun at all for the bear dude. His name is Alan Pichet, by the way. He's also a senior, and he'd been living on the side of that mountain peacefully for decades. An old hippie who just wanted to be left alone. And it was his ex-wife who started feeding one bear, and it just escalated from that. And before long... Alan was growing marijuana in part to buy the crunchy dog food up to two dozen black bears were now addicted to. Bears, by the way, that he gave names to and truly loved and appreciated. And the bears were not guarding anything. They were like pets in this reclusive setting. After my initial story, journalists clamored to talk with Pichet from all over the world. And some even tried to make the trek to his cabin deep in the woods without asking. In time... Pichet was charged with cultivating marijuana, then charged with illegally feeding wildlife. Then after all the publicity, the B.C. government decided to try and confiscate his land under our proceeds of crime law. And as one final blow, his cabin burned down. Alan Pichet's tranquil life up there was falling apart, and I was partly to blame. Hmm. I'm, I see that, but he was breaking laws, Bob. Yeah, but you know what? There is a lot of weed grown in the hills where I live, or there was then. And if you had gone out and busted all the growers, you'd have to build a lot of prisons in the Kootenays. And no, you should not feed wildlife. But it's also not the type of crime you should have your life destroyed over. And remember, within a very short period of time, Alan Pichet lost his house, his livelihood, most of his savings because all that money went to lawyers, and was about to lose his land. And I played a role in that. It, too, was small-town journalism, but it went big, then spiraled out of control for Alan Pichet. Hmm. So what happened to him, Bob? Well, I wanted to find out. So I trekked out to Christina Lake recently, a full decade after I first met Alan. He came down off the mountain to meet me at the only cafe open in winter. Alan's 75 now, but he looks really strong from living up there. He's still up there off the grid. And I asked him, did this change your life significantly, what happened all those years ago? Well, your life changes after that, for sure. Financially, my life changed radically. At 65, when it happened, that was the money that was going to go to bump up the generators, bump up the vehicles, and then I would have just cruised out wonderfully. When people are at the eye of a media storm, I think it as a bit of a tumble dryer. Was it for you or no? It was like I was at the center of a storm, but there was nothing was going on where I was. Everything was just normal. I came back, and the bears came in to be fed the regular times, and going through it, that part of it was pretty easy. The financial part was the hard part. The notoriety didn't bother you? I'm glad, because I think I brought the notoriety on you, Alan. No, I, I have the Leonian side that always wants to be on stage, and I'm a very shy person, so I don't know why I would want that, but almost one of the first things I said was, okay, Al, you got an adventure coming up here. Go through it and enjoy it. <laughs> what a great attitude. I know, I love that. Go through and enjoy it. I did grow to really like Alan Pichet and his attitude right through what happened. Another great part of being a small town journalist is I get to know these people and I followed the case right to the end. I was there for almost every court appearance and I really grew to enjoy Alan Pichet's company. And what happened to the charges then, Bob? Well, the lead charges were dropped because of inconsistent evidence. And with no marijuana charges, the proceeds of crime case was abandoned too. And he got to keep his land, which was key, obviously, for Alan. He did have to pay his lawyers and a fine for feeding wildlife, which in total was around $23,000. So it did hurt. But he caught a break and someone asked him to help tear down an old cottage on Christina Lake. And he was able to use part of those materials to build himself a new place up on the mountain to replace the cabin that had burned down. And... 
Alan wrote a book about the entire ordeal called The Bear Dude's Story, which sold pretty well both online and at the visitor center where he met me. In fact, a transcript of one of my stories is on the back cover. Alan didn't ask me if he could use my story, and I don't care one bit. After all he went through, he's welcome to it. He's also living proof small-town journalism does have impacts, good, bad, or just plain unusual. Oh, Bob, thanks for telling us these stories. Great to hear you again. 